Good morning, everyone. I'm very glad to be with you, and I thank you for your warm and friendly welcome. Your church secretary is looking after me very well indeed today, and I've even got a glass of water with ice in it, which is not something that you ever get in Edinburgh. (laughs) This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Let us join together in prayer. Let us all pray. Let us remember that today is a day of rest. Eternal God, we praise you for the rhythms of life, the changing seasons, the passing of day and night, waking hours and times of sleep, for days filled with work and play. Teach us to love our rest and to accept it gratefully. Let us remember that today is a day of gathering in God's house. Eternal God, we praise you that we belong to a family of faith, a community of praise, a people who accept us and offer gifts of friendship and support, a place of forgiveness and healing. Let us remember that today is the first of a new week. Eternal God, we praise you for the new opportunities that await us, for a fresh start, for the tasks we are given to do, for the laughter, music, and fun that brighten our days. And let us remember finally that today is the day of resurrection. Lord Jesus Christ, you rose from the tomb while your followers still slept. We praise you that you are always risen in our world and that today you live in our hearts and will speak to us in this hour of worship. This is our prayer. Amen. We have two readings this morning. The first reading is Psalm 43. And if you're following it in the Bible that's provided, it's on page 562, Psalm 43. The prayer of someone in exile. O God, declare me innocent and defend my cause against the ungodly. Deliver me from lying and evil people. You are my protector. Why have you abandoned me? Why must I go on suffering from the cruelty of my enemies? Send your light and your truth. May they lead me and bring me back to Zion, your sacred hill, and to your temple where you live. Then I will go to your altar, O God. You are the source of my happiness. I will play my harp and sing praise to you, O God, my God. Why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? I will put my hope in God, and once again I will praise him, my Saviour and my God. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 8, reading from verse 18 to 25. And it's on page 195. The future glory. I consider that what we suffer at this present time cannot be compared at all with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. 
All of creation waits with eager longing for, for God to reveal his children. For creation was condemned to lose its purpose, not of its own will, but because God willed it to be so. Yet there was the hope that creation itself would one day be set free from its slavery to decay and would share the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that up to the present time, all of creation groans with pain, like the pain of childbirth. But it is not just creation alone which groans. We who have the Spirit as the first of God's gifts also groan within ourselves as we wait for God to make us his children and set our whole being free. For it was by hope that we were saved. But if we see what we hope for, then it is not really hope. For which of us hopes for something we see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. You've probably heard the name of Leslie Newbigin. He was one of the great church leaders of the 20th century, serving originally as a missionary in Madras in India, that large city now called Chennai. Eventually he became bishop there in 1965, and some 10 years later he returned in retirement to live and teach in Birmingham and then London. In one of his later books, he famously said this, I've often been asked, what is the greatest difficulty you face in moving from India to England? I have always answered the disappearance of hope. Of course, India experiences widespread poverty, overcrowding disease and infant mortality. These have long since, for the most part, disappeared in our country. Here, life expectancy, material standards and quality of living seem much better. Yet the absence of hope in the Western world somehow sets us apart today from the peoples of Africa, Asia and Latin America. It's said that we have ceased to be hopeful about the future. Instead, we look nostalgically at the past. We're fearful of what lies ahead. We fret over our standards of living. We lament the condition of our public services. We doubt the capacity of our politicians to make things better. We've raised younger generations who seem to believe in very little. Cynicism and contempt are rife, it is said. Vision and aspiration are treated as naive, unrealistic, or even worse, as masking an attempt to gain power and control. Well, perhaps that's all a bit too stark and one-sided. But the absence of hope does seem to be a striking feature of life in the West compared to other parts of the globe. Hope, however, is a theme that emerges more strongly through the course of the Bible. 
It comes into view most clearly in the letters of Paul, where it's the subject of some attention. With great insight, he sees how closely hope is linked with faith and love. So that in the subsequent history of the church, these three became known as the theological virtues. Yet hope is already deeply embedded in much of the Old Testament, in many of the Psalms of Lament. Time and again we find the psalmists complaining to God of their predicament. Their complaints vary. Sickness, persecution, unfair treatment, fear of their enemies. And each time they cry out to God in distress. Each of these prayers, however, is also an expression of hope because the psalmist clings to God in trust. The Holy One of Israel, who has kept faith with us in the past, they reason, will continue to sustain us in the future. Psalm 43, from which we read, is typical. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. We see here how closely faith and hope are interspersed. Faith takes the form of hope under particular circumstances. It's directed towards the future as an expression of confidence in God, who will continue to act and to keep faith with us. Paul understands this in much of what he says about the Christian life. There is, he tells us, a process of redemption underway throughout the cosmos. We may not see this clearly or understand where it is leading, but we live according to this great hope. And it's one that has already been begun with the appearance of the risen Christ in the world. And this big hope furnishes us with little hopes smaller expectations for today and tomorrow, as well as a vision for the long haul and the wider picture. What does this mean for us today in practical terms? What is involved in the practice of hope? Here are a few suggestions. First, it's a hope that should inform our political life, so often today an arena of contempt and cynicism. There's probably little point in railing about the declining standards of our politicians. They will only be as good as the communities that produce them. And without societies that believe in a democratic process and hold its representatives to account, we are unlikely to find the leaders we need. Politics is a vocation that's honoured by the scriptures and the traditions of the church. The Old Testament kings are never idealised or given absolute rights, but at their best they can reflect the wisdom of God in creating social harmony and well-being. The ruling authorities are ordained by God, Paul tells us in Romans 13. And in this age in which the spirit is active in the world, we can believe in the capacity of politicians sometimes to promote the common good 
and to display in their work the signs of God's kingdom. Hope isn't a belief in inevitable progress. It may not always mean that we are optimists. But its convictions should give us the resources and confidence to engage seriously with politics and society. Many of the great achievements of the past were accomplished by people of hope who struggled against setback and hostility to realize their deepest convictions. Campaigns waged against slavery and child labor, votes for women, education for everyone, self-government for the colonies. The argument was won in each case and the argument closed in favor of each of these. Yet these were hard-earned victories in the face of much opposition and powerful vested interests. And they were only achieved by people who had hope, who believed that in the long run and despite many defeats, their vision could be realized. Many of them were probably awkward customers, difficult people to live with, they had loud and repetitive voices. But in the end, they were right. They were sustained by the hope that their cause would be vindicated. Hope is also practiced in the way we view other people. We can look upon each other hopefully as those to whom the grace of God is given and in whom the Holy Spirit is active. For this reason, it's given to us to offer encouragement to one another, to celebrate each other's successes, to share our sorrows, and to take a keen interest in the younger generation who will succeed us. Of course, our attitude to other people can also be clouded by cynicism and fear, just like our politics. Bertrand Russell was asked whether it would be a good thing if everybody was entirely honest in the presence of other people. He remarked that one of the first casualties would be the end of every friendship. <laughs> Philip Larkin was well known for his jaundiced views of his upbringing and of the miseries generally of urban life in mid-20th century Britain. Man hands on misery to man, he wrote, it deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. But it needn't be like that. And even Larkin, according to his recent biographer, was capable, it seems, of some affection towards his family and friends. I recall some years ago attending a church service in the United States. We were in a predominantly black church and they were holding a special service to mark the end of their adult education program. One woman was invited to come forward to give her testimony and she spoke of growing up in a church in the American South where there was a good deal of poverty and racial injustice. But what she remembered most about her upbringing was that as a youngster, she had sometimes been invited to sing in church. The older people had all cheered her on, 
And they would stop her in the street and tell her what a great singer she was going to be one day. In the end, she didn't make her career in singing. But she took with her the confidence and hope that others had placed in her. And it made a difference in her life. They gave me encouragement, she told the congregation. And so I'm standing here before you today. Hope is something we practice in our political life, in our dealings with other people. But hope is also something that we can internalize for our own lives. In other words, we can be hopeful about ourselves. At times, this isn't easy. Indeed, it can be surprisingly difficult on occasion to be hopeful about oneself. Young people are often filled with anxiety about their future prospects in relation to work, marriage, and the need to succeed in life. Others feel trapped in their circumstances, unable to change or to break out in new directions. Older people see diminishing prospects and failing capacities. Yet, as we read the New Testament we find that the apostle will not waver in his insistence that the spirit of God dwells within us and that our mortal existence is being prepared even now for a greater glory that is to come. What we hope for is nothing less than the transformation of the world. Yet there are also smaller and more tangible tokens of this great change already given to us here and now. The kingdom of God has already come upon you, says Jesus. Its seeds have been sown in our midst. And for this reason we can be hopeful about ourselves, not just for eternity, but for today and tomorrow and next year. Our lives can continue to be reshaped according to God's promise. We can expect fresh evidences of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We can be alert to new opportunities for service and for growth in wisdom and faith. We can look for our churches to be maintained and to prosper in their work. We can always find new ways of loving God and our neighbor. These are the practices of hope. For ourselves and our own lives. Lastly, a postscript. The final hope that is set before us in Romans 8 is not simply the prolongation of our present existence, nor is it the mere fulfillment of our personal wishes and aspirations. It's a transforming of the world and of ourselves, and it's spoken of in terms that are very hard to conceptualize or imagine. We're given stories of the labor pains of a new creation, of a gathering of different tribes, nations, and languages, of the awakening of the dead, of being changed from glory into glory, and of the communion of saints. These aren't tranquil images of consolation. 
They are deliberately challenging, bracing and unsentimental visions of God's new creation. And they require us to be disciplined in the practice of hope and to stir us up to lead hopeful lives as God's people. Leslie Newbegin himself kept going through a long and active retirement almost to his 90th year. He continued to write and to preach a gospel of hope to all whom he met. In his 80s, he addressed a group of school children in Birmingham. And in front of them, the elderly bishop succeeded in standing on his head. It was his way of showing them that they had to see their, their world and their lives in a different way. In a new way, a more hopeful way. Thanks be to God. Amen. We bring before God our prayers for the healing of the church and for the nations of the world. Bless the church, O God, called to serve you here as the gathered people of your eternal purpose. Empower each one of us as ministers of Christ's gospel, bringing hope and comfort to the world. Be merciful to a world where so many turn away and will not hear your voice. Lift us above the irreverence and contempt and selfishness that mars your creation. And lead us with all people to acknowledge your power and gospel. Rejoicing in your goodness to us, we pray for continuing grace for us, our families and all in our community. Grant that we may be faithful and responsible in all that we do and never hold back from works of mercy to those who surround us. Have mercy, we pray you, on those who are afflicted with crippling and disabling diseases. Give them patience in their suffering and grant them healing and sustain and succor those who support them. We give thanks for those who have come to the heavenly city. Be merciful in their judgment and make them perfect in eternal life. Made free by the love of Jesus Christ, we offer these prayers in his name and for his sake. Amen.